You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Now, as Alan kind of alluded to, uh, now's a chance for you to do Bible study. My favorite part of our week, I love doing this together with you. I hope you've had a chance to engage with our passage in a small group this week. I love that we get to do that periodically and get to come here together. I love hearing some of your thoughts and questions. I know this has been a challenging passage. If you're feeling stretched by engaging with Old Testament prophecy, you're in good company. I know I have. I know our teachers will not necessarily where we often find ourselves being as connectable. So uh, stick with it, engage with it. I believe the Lord has great messages for us in all of Scripture, but specifically here in Isaiah. As we start, as Alan mentioned, as we start this season of Lent, we're starting a new series that kind of coincides with it on purpose. And Lent uh, is the 40 days preceding Easter, and as Alan already alluded to, what's going on there, but, but here's more important. They Church has observed this throughout history. There's been a, a long-standing tradition in church, and so it's a time for us to celebrate as we approach Easter Sunday. Or sorry, uh, prepare to celebrate as we approach Easter Sunday. Right? I, I, I say this all the time, and I truly mean it. Easter is the highlight of the calendar, the top of the year. If you're a Christian, there is no better time than Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. This is what it's all working towards. This is what we're preparing for for this season. So join with us for the biggest day of Scripture as we prepare our hearts. Later today, I'll send out that QR code so you can get a chance to jump on if you didn't get to do that this morning. You can join one of our reading plans with us, engage in Scripture together. I love getting to follow along with you all, to hear your interactions and comments, and I've seen what the Lord's been doing through you as we engage in Scripture together. And this plan this year, it's, uh, it's, I'm excited about it. Supplementary material from the Bible Talk. It's a great visual presentation of what's going on. Amazing time. Well, uh, to begin this season, I want to offer another challenge to you, just as Alan did. Some of you, you may be familiar with this. Maybe this is something you grew up in your church tradition, your church home. This is a place, a, a space that you're familiar with. You've fasted, you've thought about this, you've engaged in reading and church has observed it. Some of you, maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe your church did not observe this. And you're like, what is going on here? Right? What are you talking about? Yeah. So these 40 days, they echo the time that Jesus spent in the wilderness before beginning his public ministry. They're a chance for us to be like that. To, to focus there and rest. In light of that, the Christians throughout history, Jesus was fasting, he was away, he was, he was, he was with you. Throughout, in light of that, throughout history, Christians have traditionally fasted during this period. So I encourage you to fast as Alan has already done. I encourage you to grow. And I encourage you to fast this week. That's great for you. In some manner or another, you know, you can, you can uh, fast from soup for 40 days and don't eat dessert. Don't eat meat for 40 days. Choose one day a week go foods. Fast in some way, because as Alan mentioned, hunger is a powerful force in our lives. It's a constant reminder of why we're doing what we're doing. And so I would fast in some way. 
And don't put out the fast for 40 days. Let me, let me put that yeah, warning out there. It's not a good idea. It's not something I would recommend. Uh, just maybe, maybe put that one aside. Do something a little bit more uh, within reach. Maybe talk with your small group. Maybe this is something you want to do together as a small group. Or maybe your huddle, your discipleship group. Maybe this is something you want to commit to together. But here's the thing about fasting. When we fast, we don't just remove something from our lives, right? Just we're like, great, I have more time. I'm not eating today, so I have those hours back. We put something back in our lives. We engage in a spiritual discipline. We pray. We read. Fellowship time to spend with the Lord to engage in prayer. Not just a time to find that thing to make us better. Right? Or get back our social media. So, so put some other spiritual discipline in place. Engage in the Word. These are your reading plans. So that's my, that's my encouragement as we go through this. Embrace these practices of Lent to reorient our hearts. That's what we're going to do. Reorient our hearts back to Jesus. Let our minds be focused prepare for that day of resurrection day. Let's pray together. So in light of that, let's get into this week in God's Word, right? And as I like to do when we start a new series, I'm going to spend some time framing it in this morning before we get to our text. So this is not going to be a traditional message. We're not going to be in the passage here for a little bit. But just bear with me. we got a lot of background to cover to frame it in, especially because Isaiah is not a book you know that they had a grasp of back then. Over these next five Sundays, we are going to be together exploring sampling of passages from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, he was one of the more dominant Old Testament prophets, right? In fact, Isaiah is quoted by the New Testament writers more than all the other prophets combined. He's the most dominant Old Testament prophet. The book is huge, right? If you open your Bible, you're probably in the middle. You're probably right there. Isaiah. It's massive. Not only that, Isaiah, he has a long-running ministry. At least four years, maybe as many as 65 years. Isaiah is a prophet for the Lord. But the book of Isaiah covers a long period of time. It covers a lot of history. A lot is going on. There's historic shifts. There's, there's political landscape has shifted. The kingdom of God has shifted. The kingdom of God. His ministry takes place in the 8th century B.C., so a long time ago, right? Not yesterday. He sees the fall of the northern kingdom, right? And then he sees the continued aggression of, of the superpowers of the day, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. This is the final hours for the kingdom of Israel. The exile is imminent. The writing's on the wall. Right? It's because of their disobedience. Because they've abandoned God and his covenant. They went back to what God told them. That's the backdrop of Isaiah's ministry. That's where he's prophesying these things. That's what we see here. His message and counsel, it's largely for the kings that are hearing these sinking ships, right? He's a prophet to the kings and to men great. But the message is for the people. The message is for the people who have to repent and return to God. That's what he's writing to them. That's what's going on. But judgment is coming. There is still hope. And so the book of Isaiah covers a lot of ground. Over these next weeks, though, we're going to focus in on four key passages near the end of the book. These passages, they're commonly referred to as the servant songs. And they develop the concept of God's true servant. The true servant. The one that will bring justice. Restore his people. Model true obedience. 
Jesus is the incarnate servant, the truly obedient servant. He fulfills all these prophecies, all that Isaiah says about the kingdom of God. As we work through these passages, we're going to arrive at some of the, some of the most profound Hundreds of years before Jesus would enter here and suffer on our behalf on the cross, Isaiah prophesied that his rejection and his death on the cross would cost his life, cost him his family. Beautiful, final word of God. As we engage with Isaiah these next weeks, we hope, we hope to develop a The beginning of creation until it's carried on to the end. So we have a lot of groundwork to lay here today. I've already begun framing it in. Let's get started. I want to ask a question as we get started because more than a few of you I know are asking questions. Why are we doing this? Why are we in this book, right? What's the purpose of this? So I want to do something a little different as I'm framing this in. It's going to feel a little bit more like a class right, than a message until we get through it. We're going to engage with uh, a chapter in Isaiah, but let's first focus on two big questions. How we read the prophets and why they tell us what they tell us. Why will we read these prophets? So in many ways, the first part is, is going to answer those questions and then we'll deal with the message. But let's begin with this question. What is prophecy? How do we read prophecy? What is it? How do we engage with prophecy? When I say prophecy, Start there. Many of you think of, well, there's probably a number of examples. Many of you may think of predicting a future, looking to things that haven't come to pass, God telling of the future. And that's absolutely part of prophecy. That's part of what's going on. But the majority, the vast majority, I think like 99% of the book of Isaiah, 99% addressing the original hearers in their context, in their immediate context, and it's actionable by them right now. It's not all about the future. It's for them right now. Something going on. God calling the people to account. And the message must be addressed. Now, prophecy, it's, it's inspired teaching from a prophet, a, a, a person appointed by God to speak for him to his people. When we read the Old Testament prophets, we're reading their sermons, you can think of the Old Testament prophet, right? their account of, of their ministry in their days, how, they're, how they've been instructed to speak to the people, the message of the Lord to the people. Their sermons. And their, me their message meant something to the people right then. It meant for them to, to turn to their people, to, to turn to their God. But often, often there's deeper fulfillment. There's something beyond just that. So as we read the as we read the prophets, as we think about the prophets and engage with them, we have to think in oracles, which is an earthly tongue for thought, right? And a good translation is going to help you with this. It's going to delineate what are the different thoughts going on, right? What where where is the prophet speaking today? At times you'll you'll read things like, This is what the Lord says, or hear what the Lord says, or woe to you, or thus says the Lord. 
just mark off the different spots by the oracles of a topic. And we take in oracles because these are the literary units of a topic. These are their paragraph markers in that particular aspect. It sort of marks off the thought. Additionally, when we engage with prophecy, we should probably notice this because some Bibles form it in different ways than the original particular block of text. It's poetic. And so we, we like we, when we read Hebrew poetry, we pay attention to parallel lines and thoughts. We look for repetition and contrast. This would be if we were reading the Psalms or if we were reading Proverbs. So oracles are their thoughts. We look for the ways that they're formed. They come in generally two shapes. It's going to fall in one of these camps. It's going to be either doom or it's going to be hope. It's going to be judgment or it's going to be blessing. Most often, the blessings, they follow after a judgment. If the people will, will return to God, they'll, they'll receive the blessings. Repent and you'll get the blessings. You'll be back under covenant with God and his people. If the hearers continue in their, in their ways, the judgment is coming. Doom is coming. The content of all these oracles, the contents of the prophets, it's mostly unoriginal. Most of it is referencing back to the covenant. It's, it's the covenant and the consequences of abandoning it. So to understand the prophets, we have to understand the covenant. We have to look at Deuteronomy and Leviticus. We have to familiarize ourselves with the law. And a good study Bible will have cross-references here for you. So I encourage you, as you, as you engage in these studies, use your study Bible. Look at your cross-references. Look at footnotes. Where is this prophet referencing? Let me show you what I mean by this. Let me give you an example. Amos, another prophet. We can read in chapter 3, an oracle of judgment against Israel in that case. And as Amos gets going in his sermon, he says, he starts talking about Israel exploiting the poor, selling the poor for his sandals, ignoring those in need. And then he tells us this. Amos 2 they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. To which we wonder, what's the sin there? Are we only, I mean, selling the poor great? Okay, that, you see, that's, that's wrong, right? Like, ignoring those in need, that's selfish, right? We can get that. Laying down in garments taken in pledge. And this is what the Amos <laughs> Maybe not by an altar, maybe that's the problem, right? What's going on here? the question. Now, cross-reference in a good study Bible points you to Deuteronomy 24. Here's what Deuteronomy 24 says. This is the law of God, the, the covenant of God given to Israel. It says, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside it. And the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, he shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. So the sin that Amos is calling out is further exploitation of the poor. A poor man that needs a loan and has nothing else to give will give his cloak, his, his outer garment, as he works through the day to pay his loan back. And at night in the desert, when the sun goes down, it gets very cold. And if you're a poor man, the only thing you have to keep you warm is that outer cloak. And so the Lord, in his kindness, will care for those in need. 
They cannot keep his uh, his belly. He surrenders it. The way to keep him from freezing up there is turning. The turning lets him have a night's sleep. And God made provision that the poor man would get his cloak back at the end of the night. At the end of the day, he wouldn't freeze to death. So Amos, in his in his oracle, he's calling out He's calling them out for selling the needy for a pair of sandals, ignoring those less fortunate, and literally stealing the jackets off the backs of horses, allowing them to freeze to death. Covenant systems that are incredible. Processes that are incredible. We as healers live in this extraordinary world and process of See, here in Amos, we see this here, but it's also true throughout most of the Old Testament prophets that we look at, especially at this time. Key sins of Israel, and then how they've been treating others. How they'd abandoned covenant and they're exploiting their fellow man, exploiting those that were foreigners, exploiting those that were their own neighbors. The inequality in their society is complex, but so many other ways we see this today. Like reading all scripture, context is king, right? We need to know what's going on. We ask the importance of the message, but why it's so important. The understanding of prophets. We have to understand the covenant, the law, the promises in there. We have to understand what it says. Do your cross-references. You don't have to be an old, old Testament PhD to do this, though, right? Good study Bible will help you with a lot of these things. So I'm encouraging you. We uh, often uh, have NIV study Bibles around. ESV study Bible is a great one. If you don't have one of those, the Catholic Communion Church has one. You know, many of you saw cross-references in, in chapter 6 as we move those in small groups this week, and we'll get to that. Last question. Why? Why? If this, if this was 8th century, prophets calling out Israel for being sinners, why are we talking about it today? Right? Why does it matter for us today? And that's a good question. It's an important question. Simple answer. Judgment for, for Israel, they, they, they reveal the heart of God. They don't drive people to sin. Absolutely true. We are under the new covenant, right? This isn't still profitable for us. This isn't the, the same covenant we're under, but it's still profitable to the people of God. And think about how we move into the future. We are under the covenant of the new blood in Christ. Grace abounds. We're not under the law. God's people were keeping the covenant. Israel was blessed by God. He chose them out of the nations. He blessed them. He made them a nation. But they went astray. They abandoned their relationship with the Lord. They ran after other gods and idols. They forgot that they were God's chosen people. He chose them. They exploited the poor. They looked out for their own interests. They became nasty workers. Now, God didn't help but bless them through Israel, through his people. And in many ways, this comes down to the American church. Because the American church has been neglectful of God's people. Some prophets, not at all. They have been. We cannot, we can fall into the same pattern and keep our Christian roots intact. 
the nature of sin and humanity has turned us inward to focus on ourselves, to, to think about the blessings for ourselves rather than think about others, rather than think about our neighbors. We play on our selfishness, our self-sufficiency. We cause distrust God's goodness. Overlook those in need. Focus on our own. It can blind us. Sin can blind us to the ways that God is calling to us. Think about uh, think about churches that like the greedy man we saw last week. Let's 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 build a bigger church so that more people can go there, right? Or people are hungry outside this week. Or, or churches, let's expand our programs and, and spend more money here. But rather than think about here's what the Lord would have us do, is there, is there another way that we can be more of a faithful church that's out there? Is it so faithful in character? Is there See, I think at, at minimum, sin can cause us to uphold systems of oppression and inequality that make the rich get richer. Don't worry, we're not going to blind our eyes to those trials that we're So the, the church today, we can listen and we can learn and see that it's nature that went astray and turned to other people. Sin led them to trust other people. And so the prophets are important for us today because they can offer a mirror to call us out of selfishness. To reveal God's heart, to draw people back to him. It's never too late. The message of the prophets is never too late. Just turn to the Lord. The prophets, they remind us of the heart of God. They've always been his people. He can have people. That all people will be saved. He desires all to enter Let's move on. I've spent way more time than I probably should, and, and I want to spend more time on all this stuff. But let me give you an overview of the book and dive into chapter six here and see if you appreciate where we're going. Chapter six is where we're headed. It's the calling of Isaiah. We're going to see his ministry beginning. That's where we're, we're headed here. So, as I mentioned earlier, Isaiah is, the, is a prominent prophet in the Old Testament. His ministry ran for decades in multiple kings, the fall of the northern kingdom, the siege of Jerusalem by Assyria, the church in its church tradition, holy, Isaiah was sawed in half, sawed in two by, under King Manasseh, a wicked leader that later ultimately his sins are going to lead to Judah's destruction and captivity. That's not a bad thing. Sawed in two, the book of Hebrews calls that out in the Hall of Faith. You can go read it right there. It's a little interesting. Isaiah prophesied coming off a period of great prosperity Despite that prosperity, his people were focused on themselves, getting rich. They've gone astray. They're worshiping other gods, they're abandoning God's laws, they're making alliances with other nations for protection rather than trusting in the Lord. The prophets were directing them to come back to the covenant, come back to the covenant. Isaiah, he's, he's active in these last years. Judah, uh, that, Judah won't go off into captivity for about another hundred years after his death, but, but the writings on the wall, they're, they're headed that direction. Judah's going to come back to 
fascinating about Isaiah is the superpower of his day was Assyria. Yet he prophesied that Judah would be carried off into captivity by Babylon, a, a low empire at that time. Nobody would have saw them as a superpower. Sincerely Assyria. The Lord saw Assyria defeated through Isaiah bringing his people forward. Isaiah 59. This is called the contraction. Now the book of Isaiah, because I often like to give you the handhold of how the book breaks down, right? As you're studying this, it breaks down into two major chunks with a, a brief historic interlude in the middle. The first section includes chapters 1 through 35 that focuses on human attempts at self-sufficiency. Let's do this without God. It's the first 35 chapters, and, and, and Isaiah calling them out for that. It's heavy on, the, on judgment, on, on failing to be God's people, failing to be his nation. There's the his, uh, chapters uh, 36 through 39 are this historic interlude where it tells us King Hezekiah and how he responds to Assyria's siege on Jerusalem. It talks of his blunders with foreign nations, making covenants with them for protection. In the final section, chapters 40 through 66, these are the prophetic oracles again of Isaiah. This time, they focus on God's people and the truth of the gospel. Salvation and comfort abound in this section. We need the children of God Fun fact, Isaiah's name. We need this to impress your friends for next dinner. Make them feel like they're done right. Isaiah's name, it means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. It's a very appropriate message for Pastor to carry out this right now. That's what his message to the people of God is. God is the one who saves. It's not about worshiping idols, alliances with other nations, disrespectful, trusting himself as human sufficiency. The book is littered with messianic images. Those that encounter Jesus saw these images and they saw them perfectly. Wow, so many of you have encountered this passage perfectly. Speaking of Jesus, the one who would bring God's people forward. Through Isaiah, God expanded the picture of Messiah. A concept that existed but really comes into fruition under Isaiah and the prophets. We, we learn terms like Emmanuel. Davidic ruler, Davidic child, branch or shoot from the stump of Jesse, cornerstone, righteous king, servant of God, anointed one, all this point, ways of referring to Jesus. Salvation through the Messiah is at the forefront of the book of Isaiah. Let's meet him. Let's meet him. Let's meet Isaiah. Turn to chapter 6 if you got your Bible with you. Generally I teach through the ESV if that's helpful to follow along. We'll always have the scripture words up here on the screen if you need it. As we briefly run through the calling of Isaiah here, This chapter is filled with majestic descriptions. There's death and life contrast and, and salvation as a whole. So let's begin. Chapter, verse 1 in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right off the bat, right off the bat, we see his 
given an event to locate the thief. Uzziah King of Judah, he died in 740 or 739 BC. He reigned for about 52 prosperous years. Very successful years in the kingdom. The loss of this king caused instability and security. What's going to happen? This The long-standing king has brought prosperity. The loss of stability, the loss of this king, it's immediately God is the true king in control, ruling over all of it, including Judah. Despite the death of this faithful king, God moves to correct the beginning of his true rule. His majesty and awe increases. The train of his robe is flowing and reaching down up to Jerusalem, filling the whole filled the temple. His dwelling place is among his people. There are angelic beings calling out holiness to God. Lord, Lord. In three times the far holy. And in Hebrew, this is this is a way to, to emphasize, to, to create a superlative, right? If you repeat a word, it's like magnifying. So when you're reading and in Hebrew poetry and, and there's a repeated word, it's like a yellow highlighter for you, right? This is important. Something's standing out there. But if you do it three times, if you repeat a word three times, it only happens with the Lord. It makes it beyond imaginable, even beyond our grasp. Can't understand it's a super superlative to the one who calls out holy, the one who wants what's bigger than a superlative. It's something so supreme we can't even grasp. God is holy beyond comparison. Holy, 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 holy beyond comparison. All creation. Isaiah, like any of us, standing in the presence of God, he's in awe. And he considers himself with his judgment. Dunford has looked upon the Lord, seen the Lord. Seek reading and see how he responds. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who calls, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched it to my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin divine power manifests itself in the, in the normal ways of creation with this earthquake and this smoke obscuring the sun and I was terribly awed because of my guilt. Seeing the Lord and I, my speech has been unclean I looked upon the Lord convicted of my sin and I said he doesn't just stop there though he, he identifies himself with his people saying with unclean people to, to the people identifies a corporate identity with the loss of one's life. The consequences of this sin corrected. He turns the poor legend back to his people. This is an important aspect. He identifies himself with the people because if Isaiah can be forgiven of his sin, certainly can we. And so with the picture of salvation, angelic beings fly to him. It 
the hot coal presses it to his lips, cleanses his unclean lips, and the person is guilt taken away, his sins forgiven, able to stand before a holy God. Right there, he walks with us in victory, glory, and majesty. We talk about Jesus What's on display here is the unworthiness of humanity. We stand before a holy God. We stand before a holy God and we realize the ways that we're falling short. What a gracious God. To repent. To hang for our sins. To accept the greater than ourselves. To become what we're infallible. Embrace Jesus in this moment. Do that as you walk through this moment. We're invited to do the same thing as they are. The living God, even, even if we stand before the living God, even the minor sins in our lives are so heavy, so heavy, so unclean, so spoken unclean words that convict us. Weight of our sins. Drawn to them because we realize that we yield and convict another way about our own. We need to repent. We trust in God for our own. Let's continue on to finish up our, this little rest of our argument. It picks up in, in verse 8 here. We're going to hear the commissioning of Isaiah. He's been, uh, been atoned for. We're going to hear the Lord commissioning these prophets. Verse 8 he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. Isaiah is in relationship with them. He can see with them. He can respond to them. He can eagerly cry out to them. Here I am. Use me. God gives them encouragement through this verse 8. Just let's just be honest with ourselves. What is going on here? Right? He's told to go tell the people to keep hearing but, but not understanding. Keep seeing but, but not really discerning, right? Otherwise, they're going to hear and be saved? I mean, is that sort of what we can see preaching? What's going on? This is, this is what I refer to as the prophet's dilemma. Right? Isaiah, like all prophets, he's sent to a people who are resisting God's commands. They know God. They know his counsel, his commands. The only way, though, for them to be won back is to hear the message of God and respond to it. To hear from God They've already been hearing it. They've 
army. Remember, the army rejected him. They rejected the promise of Abraham. But man, he was so insincere about it. So ill treat the covenant to turn to God. Breach the covenant. And yet they rejected it. Keep hearing, but not understanding. That's the message. That's the prophet's dilemma. The message isn't new. People reject this because it's got no answer. They need the Lord to answer it. Lord to answer it. And I'm sure all of us in our lives, we've encountered situations like this, right? Where we've had that friend or that family member or that co-worker who we've been reaching out to, we've been hostile with or rejected, or they don't want to come to church, they don't want to come to small group. Yet, because it's a choice, we want to continue to invite them and continue to engage with them. We want to continue to pray for them. And there will be people that will continue to hear and reject even the people that will continue to hear and be open to hearing. Because we're all sent to continue to keep seeking, continue to keep inviting, continue to keep pushing. And God says, Lord, so here I am, send me again, please. Lord, bring the message to me. Well, there's three Hebrews in this, so it's a tricky story. The final exchange we have between Isaiah and the Lord Isaiah, he's going to ask God how long he has to carry that message. How long do I have to do this, this impossible task, Lord? Because they think the, the Lord's promise is impossible. And Isaiah is like, sure, send me. How long must I carry this message? And the Lord responds, three months. Picking up in verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and house without people, and the land is a desolate and the Lord removes people far away from the fortune places and many lands, forsaken places and many lands. And though a tent remains, it will be burned again. Like a caravan oak, stumps remain from the desert, but holy cedar is forever. Lord, how long? Isaiah asks, how long? How long do I have to speak this message to the people who reject it? which God responds later. I don't have to hear it, but it's incredibly merciful. More beautifully merciful. He tells Isaiah, keep speaking the message until there's no one left to hear it. God is not giving up until there's no one left to hear it. Keep speaking the message of God until there's no one left in the land to hear it. Until all the inhabitants are gone, the houses are empty, the land is laid waste, exile has and everything has been burned, and all that remains is a tent. Exile to tents is pretty devastating. We know that from history, yet it's still time for them to repent. It's still time for them to return to the Lord. Fifty years before Babylon was promised this promise, Isaiah's message to the inhabitants of the land was burned. So Isaiah, he must carry the message of the Lord until there's no one left calling the people back until they do, until there's no one left to hear. And so he does, until his death, until he is sawed in two, this is the message I share. Come back to the Lord, repent and believe, for your promise is true. But even when all seems lost, when there's no one left, you're left with this image of the tree. The tree is cut down, it's burned, everything is debated, but God says no. And the thing about There's this vast reach, there's this vast 
remnants of the true Jerusalem seed. The stump is the holy seed that God has reserved. The seed of Jesse that will grow out is one of the images of Jesus that we see in Scripture. The seed will come back to life. People will never truly be lost to captivity. There will still be a remnant. Those that remain that are brought back from exile. Those that cling here to God that will repent even in captivity, even after there's no one left in the land, the message of Isaiah, the, the word of the Lord will ring true in the hearts of the Canaanites and the Hittites. Those that hold on to the seed will be kept alive. One day, God will restore the important message of Isaiah. Save us, we save us. The Holy Spirit That's the beginning of Isaiah's prophetic message that we call prophecy or book in Isaiah. We covered a lot of ground. Maybe more in a message than I would probably tell any other preacher. I hope you track with me. I hope you're, you're engaged. As we begin this, this season of Lent, I want us to reflect on the message of the cross. The message matters to us because sin is still alive, leading us astray, calling us away from God. Are we captivated by it? Just as Isaiah called us to come back to God. Back to the foundation of our faith, to our trust in Christ. As a church, we still need to hear that message. In our hearts and lives. During the season of Lent. And all the time. Let's repent of our sin. During Lent, let's focus our ways on the ways we need to repent. We walk through this season, let's repent to God and endure as we see our sins are forgiven. Let's be glad of that. Let's repent and be transformed and renewed by our thinking and our thinking and restoring God as the true Jerusalem seed. Let's set our gaze on Jesus, the servant of God.